When he, that is Jesus, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leopard came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, no, when, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fill what was spoken by, by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text that teaches us of who your son is and that you sent him. We thank you for the display of power in, in his life that, that validates for us, that shows us that he is who he told us he was and what your word says he was and is. Father, as we come to your word now, I, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to see glorious things from, from your word, Lord, that we would be uh, amazed and marvel at, at what we've seen and, and then uh, move uh, forward in, in trust, not only trust of you and of your plan, but of your word, and most importantly, of your son, of his perfect life and substitutionary death. Lord, may we marvel at who he is and, and understand rightly the authority that he holds in our lives. Father, we continue to pray for Skip and Ruth Sorensen today. We, uh, we thank you that they get to go to Kenya, in fact, I believe are there even right now for their oldest grandson's graduation. And as he moves to Spokane to uh, go to Missions Aviation School, we, we pray that he uh, will not only have a, an incredibly meaningful time here uh, and grow in his faith and walk, but then be able to serve you well, Lord, wherever it is you, you take him and wherever you use the skills that you have given them. Lord, as... Um, as Skip has trained up this new librarian for uh, the library that is, that is there. Lord, we, uh, we pray that those students and teachers might use that resource well. Lord, you have always compelled your people to write, whether that's in Scripture or whether that's just writing in, in regards to the things of Scripture. And Lord, as we move into a, a world uh, that is 
more and more prone to ignore what is written. May we never be found guilty of ignoring your written word. May we not even be found guilty of ignoring those who write good things about your word and instruct us because you have chosen the media of of the written word to display yourself fully and truly in this life. And even your son is called the living word. And so, Lord, may we as well value those who have gone before us and have written well of Christ and of your word and of the church and of what is required of us. May we be found to be a people of the book, especially this book, until your coming. Lord, do great things in us for your glory, for our good, for our salvation. We ask it all today in Jesus' name. Amen. I think today's message um, is a really, really important one. And if I'm, I'm going to be honest, probably a little technical, uh, a little chalky. But, but I think what we're going to see as we look in God's word today is going to yield some great things. We come now to this passage in Matthew where, where Jesus is, is uh, beginning to perform all of these miracles. And I think if we don't pause for a moment, we're going to consider this text for two weeks because of this. If we don't pause for a moment and consider what Scripture says about those who do the miracles in Scripture, those who specifically have the gift of miracles, and we'll split that hair here in just a moment, we might miss all of what Matthew is trying to teach us about the miracles of Christ. I think for me, this is one of those things where I had read the Bible many a time, uh, and until somebody pointed this out, I was like, wow, I never noticed that before. It's so clear. It's right there. But I just had never seen it before. And the Bible often does that to us, right? There's so much there, and there's so many wonderful things. But somebody comes along and says, hey, look at this. And we go, wow, how did I never see that? This is, this is kind of one of those things. But what I want to do today is a little bit of a theology of miracles from Deuteronomy all the way through the book of Revelation to see what is going on in God's Word. I think many Christians, myself included, before this was pointed out to me, kind of believe that for thousands of years, God's people were, were marked by the performing of miracles. And then all of a sudden... When Jesus died, that goes away. If if you did not know, that gift, uh, the the gift of performing miracles, again, we're going to talk about what the difference between God doing miracles and and the gift of miracles is. From the death of the apostles until very, very recently, about the last hundred years, the church unanimously and universally attested to the fact that that gift was not a gift in operation. And, and so it would seem like, hey, why, why would we have thousands and thousands of years of people doing miracles all of a sudden to, at the death of the apostles, to have thousands and thousands of years of no miracles? But when we actually look at the biblical record, we see that that's not really the case. And so uh, we're going to count down today. We're going we're gonna to kind of go three, two, one. We're going to work backwards in our point. So point number one on your outline is that there are in Scripture three periods of the performing of miracles. 
Three periods of the performing of miracles. The first is around Moses and Joshua. And in fact, we can put approximate dates on these. So from approximately 1445 to 1380 B.C., we see that that, uh, Moses and Joshua uh, are given the ability to perform miracles as the leader of God's people. If you're doing the math, 1445 to 1380 BC is around 65 years. And then they stop. And there's not many miracles until Elijah and Elisha. Now we're going to fast forward 520 years to 860 BC to 795 BC around Elijah and Joshua. Once again, we see a a flurry of miracles around Elijah and Elisha. Again, a period of about 65 years. And then we have this period around Jesus and the apostles. Jesus and the apostles. So Jesus begins his ministry approximately in 30 AD. And if we were to date the death of John at the very latest and assume that he was able to do miracles until his death, that gets us to around 100 AD, a period of about 70 years, which means from 1445 to 100 AD, 1,545 years of biblical history, only about 200 years of that were were, uh, periods where the people of God were performing or, or exercising the gift of miracles. Now, what is the difference between miracles that just happen and God doing miracles? Now, I'm going to ask you a question, okay? It's not a trick question, I promise. Does God do miracles today? Yes, he does. How many of you in this room today, I won't make you raise your hands, how many of you believe that you are saved and forgiven of your sins by Jesus Christ? I said you didn't have to show hands, but I do. I'll raise my hand. Do you realize that when dead sinners come to life, there is no greater miracle? Not the curing of cancer. Not oil pots that don't run dry. Not the raising of the physically dead to life. Not the healing of a centurion's servant. Not the blind seeing or the lame walking. All of those are wonderful things. And, and I think most of us, I mean, let's, let's, have, let's have a show of hands on this one. How many of you at least have experience with somebody? I'm not talking about like distant third hand like I heard a story. How many of you either had a doctor tell you or know somebody who had a doctor tell them? So first or second hand, I can't explain that. That's a lot of hands. That's a lot of hands. God does miracles. But the gift of miracles as we see it, in fact, it's not usually called miracles. In fact, almost never. What it's called is signs. They're primarily called signs. And what do signs do? They point us to something. And that's what I want us to see today is that these signs and wonders, as they're often called, 
point us to something. And scripture doesn't leave us wondering what they point to. It, in fact, tells us what they point to. But the gift of miracles, the gift of signs and wonders was, and here's my definition of it, it was the ability to perform miraculous gifts at will and even to abuse that gift. Can you abuse the spiritual gifts given to you? The Corinthians were. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 was all about. They were using them for, for self-promotion rather than for corporate edification. And they were abusing them. And Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, to, to correct the abuse of spiritual gifts and other things in there. Moses he gets angry with the people as they're wandering through the desert and as they complain and, and whine. And we got a lesson there because for thousands of years, uh, parents and people have been getting frustrated with complaining and whining. But Moses is frustrated with the people of God as they complain and whine their way through the desert. And in his anger, he strikes a rock and what comes out? Water. And what does God tell Moses as a result of using that gift in that way? He tells him, you too will now no longer enter into the promised land. God punished him because he not only used that gift in that way, he abused the gift in that way. And in fact, so, so strong was the ability to perform these signs and wonders that we never see the people who they were given to wondering what God might do. Peter, uh, he does not walk up to the temple and see a beggar and say, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I might give you in the name of the Lord. Stand up and walk. Paul doesn't preach till midnight. I hope you're prepared for that. That's what we're going to do today, just so we can prove this. Um, Paul doesn't preach till midnight in the third story of a house and have a young man fall out and walk down and say, well, God can raise him to life, but I don't know if he will. No, these men had the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders at will. They commanded the blind to see and the lame to walk and the dead to rise. Peter, people were lining up in Acts hoping that just his shadow might cross them. And so what we see today when we see these self-proclaimed, self-promoting faith healers going around saying, I'm here to heal you. And then when you don't get healed, when they say, well, it's because you don't have enough faith, there is nothing biblical about that pattern. In fact, we're commanded as a church how to seek out miracles among us in the book of James, where James tells us, if any of you is sick, he should call the elders, and the elders will come. There's a lesson to be learned there. If you're sick, if you're in the hospital, if you need God to intervene or desire for God to intervene in those ways, you call the elders, and the elders come and pray over you. But that is not the gift of miracles. That's God working miracles. And so that brings us to our second point, because when you begin to talk about miracles... There, uh, 
there's just often things that get misunderstood. So we first see that there's three periods of miracles, Moses and Joshua, or the gift of miracles, Elijah and Elisha, not only those people, but around Moses and Joshua, around the time of Elijah and Elisha, and around Jesus and the apostles. But I want to now move from three periods of miracles to two things I'm not saying. (laughs) And I want to be very, very, very clear about what I'm saying, and I think I've already mentioned these. Number one, I'm not saying that miracles don't happen today. Absolutely miracles happen today. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for God to do miraculous things. I, in fact, believe that we are commanded to pray that God would do miraculous things. We should pray for healing. We should pray for people to come to faith in God. God does miracles today, and he does them all the time. And, so that's the first thing I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God doesn't do miracles today. And number two, I'm not saying that the Spirit is not at work. I'm not saying that the Spirit is not at work among his people. Uh, I want to be very clear, because I think 1 Corinthians 3 and, and 2, in fact, is very clear about this. He who plants and waters is nothing but God who gives the increase. That means anything good that has ever happened in any church, any growth that you have ever had in your life, your salvation, your progress in the faith, your maturity, your spiritual gifts, and everything in between are the work of the Holy Spirit in his church and in the world. The Holy Spirit is alive and well and working today. I'm also, I'm going to add a third one here. I'm not saying that God can't give those gifts. God can do anything he wants uh, within his character and according to his plan. But all building and edification in the church is a work of the Holy Spirit. And as I've already said, every time we see somebody saved, we've seen the greatest miracle of all time. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the gift of miracles The ability for somebody, like if if I had the gift of miracles, I'd just walk into the hospital and clear the place out. That's what Jesus did, by the way. The the historical record would affirm to us that there was probably uh, next to no illness in the areas where Jesus was performing miracles and, and teaching and doing his work. He was healing people at an unbelievable rate. And not just of back pain. We're talking about congenital illnesses, people who were blind from birth being able to see, crippled people who who could walk. But the gifts are given in this gift in particular is given for a specific reason in Scripture, and I want us to understand that reason. And again, I think if we don't understand that reason from God's Word, we might be very, very prone to miss what's going on in the book of Matthew, and it's wonderful. It's worth seeing. So that brings us to our main point, and that is one purpose of miracles. One purpose of of miracles. And so the one purpose of miracles given in scripture is to establish the credibility of someone speaking on behalf of God. I'm not talking about the New Testament gift of preaching. I'm not talking about those who expound upon God's word and who write books and who preach sermons. 
I'm talking about those who are authorized to stand before kings and nations and, and even God's people and say, thus saith the Lord. In fact, I think God is really clear just about how much a prophet was to speak the words of God. And so I want us to consider that. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Deuteronomy. To the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to spend a lot of time in Deuteronomy and Exodus. So we're going to hang out there. But if we start in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Well, before we get there, uh, actually, turn to Exodus 4. I'll just read these ones to you out of Deuteronomy. I, I, re- I just realized I put my notes a little out of order. Um, I, I, think, I think so clear is the purpose of miracles because, um, you know, I think most of us know the, about the warning at the end of the book of Revelation, right? Revelation chapter 22, 18 and 19. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And so we get this warning in Revelation not to add to the words of Scripture. But you know, that's not the only place in Scripture where that warning is given. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of our fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. Now, if there's this commandment in Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible, the fifth book of Moses, that we're not to add any words to it, what would make the rest of the authors of Scripture so audacious as to add another 61 books to the Bible? And I would say it's because God was validating the addition of those books by signs and wonders. Uh, the, The cost of getting this wrong is great, by the way. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, this is Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder he tells you comes to pass. So even if he's able to work miracles, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The stakes of getting this wrong is very, very, very high. We, the, we were commanded not to add, and yet people did. And I don't think they did wrongly, by the way. 
And we were told that if you do get it wrong, you are to die. The stakes are high. What is it that made these other men come along and write what we have here? Well, Let's see it played out in Scripture. The first thing I want to look at is what it means to be a prophet. Again, not just a preacher, not somebody explaining the Word of God, not an evangelist, somebody telling the gospel, but a prophet, somebody who says, thus saith the Lord. Well, we're going to start out in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to see that. Now, we we recall that the story of Exodus is that the nation of Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And God is raising up Moses and has called Moses to go tell Pharaoh, in whose house Moses was even raised, to to let the people go. And so in Exodus chapter 4, we see an incredible definition from God about what a prophet is. Because if you remember, there's actually another thing at play in the history here. You remember Moses was like, how am I supposed to go tell Pharaoh to let the people go? I'm a man who's slow of speech and slow of tongue. And I'm not an eloquent man. Maybe he stuttered. I don't know. Whatever it was, Moses was like, I'm I'm not a very good public speaker, God. How am I supposed to be the one to go tell Pharaoh? Pharaoh. And God says, well, who made your mouth? Who made your tongue? Just just go do what I tell you. But here's what God says in Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 15. You shall speak to him. Now that him is Aaron. He's telling him, go get your brother Aaron. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. So the call of God here is that Moses take the words that he wants to say to Pharaoh and give them to Aaron and Aaron will be the one who speaks them. And he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. In other words, the act of Moses putting his his words in the mouth of Aaron and Aaron speaking those words was a God-slash-prophet-like relationship. Turn back just a couple of chapters to Exodus 6. Exodus 6, or turn forward, I guess, to Exodus 6, starting in verse 28. We see this again. On this day, when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet." You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. So that's what a prophet did. That's what one, the the very definition of a prophet is not just one who speaks about God, but one who speaks on behalf of God. One who speaks words that were given to him directly by God. To have God's words put in your mouth. And so when when Moses put his words in Aaron's mouth, Aaron was playing the prophet and Moses was like God. Aaron was like 
the prophet. But then, after we get through all of this in Exodus about, okay, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips and I'm slow of speech and I have all these problems, how, how God, even if I go, even if I put my words in Aaron's mouth, even if I'm like God to Aaron, putting my words in his mouth, and he's like a prophet to me, speaking all of the words that I tell him to, how is Pharaoh going to know that I am authorized to speak on your behalf? That's the next question that comes up. So turn back with me now to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. This time we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. And so the the context here is that Moses is asking God, Okay, God, even if I go, even if I go to Pharaoh and I walk into the throne room and I stand before him and I say, Let my people go, how will Pharaoh know that you sent me? How will they know that the words that I'm speaking to them are words that were placed in my mouth from you? And that's when God says, what's that in your hand? And he makes him throw down the staff. And then look what verse 5 says. All of this that, that we just read is that they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak and he took it out. And behold, it was leprous like snow. And then he made him put it back inside his cloak and it came out and it was not leprous. Verse eight, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. In other words, what God is telling Moses is, I'm going to give you the ability to perform signs so that people might know that you are speaking these words on my behalf. God gives Moses the ability to perform miracles so that he would be validated as the messenger of God. Turn with me now back to Exodus chapter 7, just again a few chapters later. Look look at the rest of the passage uh, that we've already read, verses 1 and 2. So starting in verse 3, we see, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretched out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff 
and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. And so we see the ability of Moses to do these miracles was expressly, these signs, was expressly for the purpose of validating them as spokesmen on behalf of God. And then this right here, it becomes the New Testament pattern, or the Old Testament pattern, rather. Um, I'm going to go rather quickly here, and if you'd like to turn there, you may. But if we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, we see um, in verses 15 through 22, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of it. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In other words, how will we know that you're raising up prophets? Well, They will, like Moses, be able to do things. They'll be able to make predictions, and those predictions will come true. And so the first criterion of an Old Testament prophet like Moses and like these other prophets who God is saying here in Deuteronomy to Moses that God will raise up from among the people, they, they one, they must be able to never be wrong in the things that they say. If they're wrong, those words were clearly not from God because God is not wrong. So the first test of a prophet is that what he speaks comes to pass. The second test of a prophet is his ability to do signs. And the third, lastly, is that he is is, uh, true to what God's word has always said. So if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 13, we see these next two uh, criterion of a prophet. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, so now there's signs and wonders connected to a prophet, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and even if he says, so we've got the three criteria here, or the first two, he's able to do signs and wonders, he's making predictions about the future that are actually coming to pass, but, and that means this is the most important test of a prophet, But if he does not adhere to previously revealed truth, it's not from God. If he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to that word from the prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, we see that not only was this pattern played out in Moses, But we're told that that there would be other prophets and that when those prophets rise up among God's people, they'll have to meet the same criteria. 
If they make predictions about the future, they must come true, they must do signs and wonders, and they must not contradict truth. The miracles were to be the credentials of the prophet. 1 Kings chapter 18, don't turn there, I'll make it quick, but most of us probably know the story of Elijah and Elisha on Mount Carmel, or not Elisha, but Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And and, uh, Elijah sets up this contest with the prophets of Baal and the priestesses of Asherah, and he says, we'll set up two altars, we'll slaughter a bull, we'll put the bull on the altar, and we'll call down fire from heaven. And whatever God does that is God. And they say, we agree. And so the prophets of Baal, they put their their, uh, their bull on the altar, and they dance around all morning till afternoon, cutting themselves Um, Elisha spends the whole time mocking them, like he's pretty sarcastic. Um, Cry out louder. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's uh, he's occupied. It's a Hebraism for maybe he's on the toilet. Maybe he's relieving himself and can't hear you. And they go along limping and no fire comes. And then Elijah has them take buckets of water and pour them all over the altars. And then in in, uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36, this is what Elijah prays. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, that'd be about three in the afternoon, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Lord, show them your God and validate me as your prophet by means of a miracle. And that's exactly what happens. Fire comes down from heaven and burns up both altars and burns up both. I mean, it just God consumes it all. It's almost as if Elijah understood that, that the miracles would be a validation, and I would say he, he did understand that, of who he was as God's prophet. So clear is this, in fact, let's move to the New Testament, so clear is this, in fact, that I think the Jews had a theology of this. Turn with me to John chapter 3, if you'd like, John chapter 3, otherwise I'll read it to you. But in John chapter 3, we see that Nicodemus uh, is a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. So John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. How do you know that, Nicodemus? How do you know that Jesus is a teacher who came from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus, we know that God sent you. We know you have the credentials of one who is sent on behalf of God to represent God. And how do we know that? Because you can do signs and wonders. 
The Jews, before there was any giving of any New Testament scripture, had a theology that said, if you could perform miracles, you were one who was sent on behalf of God. Because the testimony of that is so clear in the Old Testament. And again, it becomes the pattern. Turn ahead now, just two chapters, to John chapter 5. In verse 36, we're talking about the witnesses to Jesus. Jesus is, in fact, talking about witnesses. And he says, first, John the Baptist, starting in verse 30, was a witness to who he is. But look what he says in verse 36. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Nicodemus wasn't wrong. Jesus is telling us Nicodemus was right. That a greater witness to who he was than John the Baptist was the very miracles that he was performing, the very signs he was doing. Turn to the next chapter, John chapter 6. This is the feeding of the 5,000 in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. He did a miracle, and they said, this must be the one. If he's able to do these signs, this must be the one. In fact, so powerful was Jesus in the working of his signs and miracles that if we turn just one more chapter ahead, chapter 7 now, verse 31, we hear this. Um, The crowds are saying, hey, can this be the Christ? Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, when the Savior appears, when the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Who could do more of the miracles? Who could do more miracles than what this guy has done? Nobody's done as much as what he's doing. Nobody has been so validated by God as Jesus. How could anybody else be the Christ? Nobody could do more than this. And they understood. Three chapters now, John chapter 10, starting in verse 24. Jesus is going to point us again to the working of miracles. So, I'll back up to verse uh, 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, "'How long will you keep us in suspense?' If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you're the Messiah, if you're the one who's going to save us, please tell us. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Again, he's pointing to his own ability to work miracles as a validation of who he is as sent by God. We see the same thing in verse uh, 37. Verse 37. If I am doing the works of my Father, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And so Jesus keeps pointing 
over and over and over again to his ability to work miracles, to perform signs and wonders as his credentials as one authorized by God. And so Moses was credentialed by signs and wonders to speak on behalf of God. Elijah and Elisha and the prophets were validated. They had the credentials of a prophet to speak on behalf of God. And Jesus is credentialed Again, this means that Jesus' miracles were not, listen carefully, Jesus' miracles were not primarily a tool for effective evangelism. In fact, most often, if we look at the whole context of these verses, I would encourage you to explore them more. They weren't effective at all. The people aren't good-heartedly asking. They're rejecting him. And he says, you don't believe me. In fact, we can just stay right here in chapter 10. He does these miracles. He says, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus' miracles were not primarily a tool for effective evangelism. In fact, if we go back to chapter 16 of Luke, verse 31, and you don't have to turn there, Luke 16, verse 31, uh, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. Look, I mean, let's just be honest. Jesus' evangelism was not all that effective. I don't mean that he wasn't a good evangelist. I don't mean that he wasn't a good preacher. I don't mean that he didn't do exactly what he was supposed to do. But Luke is telling us that the people didn't believe and they rejected him so that what the prophet said would happen would come to pass. 1 Corinthians tells us that the truth of who he was was hidden from the rulers of that age so that they would crucify the Lord of glory. They were supposed to reject him because he didn't come to be accepted right away. He came to be rejected and crucified. And even those who were the closest to him abandoned him at the final hour. His miracles were not primarily a tool for effective evangelism. They were were his credentials that said he was the son of God. They also were not primarily signs of compassion. They were no doubt compassionate. In fact, Jesus performs many a miracle because he had compassion on the people, including the feeding of the 5,000. But they weren't primarily about compassion at least not regarding physical things. And maybe this is one of the great implications for us. The point of Jesus' miracles wasn't to show us that Jesus wanted great things for us temporally, physically. It wasn't about being healthy and wealthy. It was about being holy. 
Jesus, Jesus' miracles of physical things, his healings, his feeding of the 5,000, his raising others to life aren't just so that we might see he had compassion for us in this life. They all point us to, to, the, to the fact that he's the one who, who has the compassion and the power to rescue us from the next. That, that he's the one who has the power to rescue us from hell and to provide us eternal life. And if, if we just look at Jesus' miracles and go, man, that's it. That's the point. Let's go find people and heal them and then find the next person. And we don't ever proclaim the gospel. We've missed the point. We've missed the point that what all of these do is point us to the fact that Jesus is the one who can save our souls, who can heal us spiritually. The main reason of Jesus' miracles was to confirm that he spoke the words of God. Moses understood this. The prophets understood this. Nicodemus understood this. But guess what? The apostles understood this. Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Verse, uh, I'm sorry, Acts 2, verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Why does Peter tell the Jews to listen to him about who Jesus is? Because he was a man attested to by signs and wonders. And so the apostles, I got to get going now. I just saw the clock. Let's move. The apostles didn't just understand that that was true about Jesus. They understood that it was true about them. Acts 14.3. So they, that is the apostles, remained a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who, that who is a reference back to the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hand. In other words, the apostles were preaching and God was validating their preaching by giving them the ability to work miracles. The entirely unknown to us author of Hebrews seems to understand this as well in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where he says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his Will And then we see, and I'll just gloss over this real fast, if we go to Revelation and we look at the two prophets in Revelation, what do they have the ability to do? The exact same things as Elijah. Hold back rain, bring rain, call down fire from heaven. How do we know the two prophets in Revelation are actually prophets? They're able to do the signs of the prophets. Now, isn't it interesting that these three periods of miracles, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, uh, again, those are just periods of time, around Moses and Joshua, around Elijah and Elisha, and around Jesus and the apostles, are also the three sections of Scripture that we have. We have the law, the prophets, and the New Testament. How did these guys know they were authorized to add to this book? 
had all the credentials of those who were authorized to do so. They had the credentials of those who were authorized to speak on behalf of God, as did Jesus. Now, if you're like, Logan, please shut up. Let me tell you why this is such good news for us. Number one, Jesus can be trusted. We live in a day and age, especially among younger generations, and if you're not of those younger generations, you need to understand this. We live in a day and age where there is a crisis of trust. And I get to put myself in the old category these days, and I'm okay with that. But can I just say we've given them good reason? Whether it's our current president or the last one, both of them are morally bankrupt. We've given them good reason. Newspapers are littered with headlines of pastors who have sexually abused people in church. And I'm mad about it. We've given them good reason. But Jesus, he can be trusted. And so him we proclaim. He's the one sent by God. And he isn't just another prophet. He was able to do so many miracles that people said, Could the Christ possibly do more? The scriptures can be trusted. The scriptures can be trusted because they were written by men who were validated by God with the credentials of those who were authorized to speak on behalf of God. And in the same way, modern day prophets, the Joseph Smiths and Ellen Whites of the world who claim to be prophets, we now have an ability to ask them, where are your credentials? And so if somebody comes along on TV or in a book or as an evangelist and says, I am authorized on behalf of God to tell you something outside of the words of those who have already been credentialed. We now have a test to know whether or not it's true. Are they credentialed by God? We can know who to trust. We can trust Christ. We can trust his righteousness We can trust his life. We can trust his death. We can trust his resurrection. We can trust those who were authorized by God to write this book and tell us who they were. In a a world where trust is thin and rare, we can trust this man. We can trust our Savior. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being trustworthy for sending men who served us rather than sought personal gain, who who sought our good, and most of all, Jesus, who sought our spiritual good by living our righteousness for us and by dying the death we deserved to die so that by faith we might be united to him and you for all eternity. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.